decaffeinated. It's going to be fun. Uh, the rest of you can open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 in verse 21 through 26. That's where we'll be at today. And uh, if this is your first time joining us, or maybe it's your first time in a long time, welcome. We're glad that you're here. We're in a Roman series, and this Roman series is going to go for a long time. I don't know how long, but it's going to be a long time. Uh, and we're in Romans 3 today. We've been kind of journeying along with the Apostle Paul as he is speaking to the church in Rome. Phoebe has carried this letter. Uh, and has carried it all the way to the church in Rome, is reading it. And where Phoebe is at in the letter is she is reading Romans 3, verses 21 through 26. And as you turn there, I want to tell you a story about myself. I was in middle school band, and I did not like it. Any other middle school band folks here? Okay, there was quite a few of you. I did not enjoy it. It wasn't worthy of a whoop, in my opinion, okay? Um, uh, I was in percussion, which I thought meant I was going to get to play cool drums, it did not mean that. It meant that I carried around this like giant xylophone keyboard thing uh, and had to go and practice these little mallet drills with it. The thing was very large. It came in this giant black bag. It was expensive. And we borrowed mine from a family friend. My family didn't have a lot of money. And so we borrowed the xylophone, this keyboard thing from a family friend. I did not take care of it. Okay. That was like the one condition of borrowing it. It was my responsibility as a sixth grader to take care of this thing, I did not do that. I treated it like garbage because I did not like playing it. I would come home, I would throw it across my bedroom when I got out of the car coming home from school, I would throw it across the yard. I just did not like this thing. And one day after hurling it across the front yard, I opened up the case and found out it was broken. It was split right down the middle. This thing was broken and I knew that I was in trouble. Uh, because my father had given me a very stern lesson about borrowing and responsibility and taking care of things. And so I go inside and I tell my mom, she says, well, I'm going to tell your dad when he gets home. And you guys know how that is, right? It's not just like, okay, when's he getting home? When's he getting home? It's like the longest two hours between when school let out and when my dad got back. So my father sits me down. He explains to me, hey, this was a huge mistake. I'm incredibly disappointed. Uh, and uh, this was the one person in my life I did not want to let down, okay? I did not want to fall short of his estimation of me, and yet I had in this situation. So I went to bed that night feeling like an absolute failure. Maybe you've had one of those nights. You just feel like nothing you can do is right. Everything you did that day is wrong. That's how I felt. Uh, and around midnight, I woke up to go get a cup of water. So I was going into the kitchen, and through the light out of my dad's office, I could kind of see that somebody was up. And it was like, it was midnight. Uh, so I was like, what's, what's going on over there? Um, and so I kind of like slide over. And I look through the crack in the door into my father's office. And he's on his knees. And he's got that keyboard in front of him. And he's fixing it. He's fixing it. I never told him that I saw this. And he probably still doesn't like it that I saw this. But it was a picture to me. It was a picture to me of a father's love taking something broken and making it whole again. And I'll never forget it. And when I think about what Paul is telling us in Romans 3, 21 through 26, that's the image that comes to mind for me. The love of a father taking what has been broken and making it whole again. Because Paul, in these last couple of chapters before we get to our passage today, he's been giving us, giving us bad news Bad news, which is everything is broken, including us. All of us are broken, and all of us are not merely broken, but we're powerless to fix it on our own. 
We can't fix our brokenness. None of us is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks after God, right? And, and like Pastor John talked about last week, this brokenness, it doesn't just kind of, it's not just out there. Although oftentimes when we're thinking about the brokenness of the world, it's a lot easier to find brokenness out there than it is to see brokenness in here. And yet, as Pastor John was reminding us, God is trying to tell us in these passages, don't miss your sin. Don't miss your sin. Be honest about your brokenness and understand the reality that you're powerless to fix it. And in these verses, Romans 3, 21 through 26, Paul calls our attention back to how he began the letter with his thesis statement in Romans 1, 16 through 17. Remember those verses before all of this bad news. Paul had told the church in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So as Paul moves us from the subject of these last few passages back into the hope of salvation, we are left asking a question. If we are broken and we can't fix ourselves, how are we going to be made whole? If we're broken and we can't fix ourselves, how are we going to be made whole? Well, I'm going to read Romans 3, verses 21 through 26. And after I read it, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And there's an invitation for you to give thanks and say, thanks be to God. The reason we do that is because God hasn't left us in silence. He's spoken to us, and we want to give thanks for that. Let me read Romans 3, verses 21 and following. It will also be on the screen behind me. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now there are three things that I want you to see here, and you can write them down if you're taking notes. The first is righteousness displayed. When we look at this passage, we're going to see righteousness displayed. The second is need demonstrated. Need demonstrated. And the third is salvation delivered. Righteousness displayed, need demonstrated, salvation delivered. Let's look in verse 21. Paul begins by saying, but now. Now, this phrase may seem like, okay, why is this of any significance? Well, Paul uses this phrase, but now, through his letters to indicate that he's changing focus. He's changing focus, and he's also changing times. He's saying, this is how it used to be, but now. And he's bringing the audience into the present reality that he's addressing. And he's been commenting on the past. He's been looking back. He's been talking about the difference between Jews and Gentiles and how all are broken and all in need of salvation. And now, with this phrase, but now, he's coming back into the church in Rome, and he's saying, okay, I've been talking to you about the past, but now I'm speaking to you in the present. And at one point, the law of Israel, because this is what Paul is talking about, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Okay, now hold on. Now, when Paul begins to talk about the law, what's he talking about? What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about the Pentateuch. He's talking about the law of Israel. He's talking about the law that had shaped and been the center of God's presence and God's purposes 
throughout the whole of the Old Testament. You see, Israel, Israel, God's people, had been characterized by fidelity, faithfulness, and obedience to the law, to what God had told them after he delivered them out of Egypt, to the new way of living that God had given to the people of Israel when he rescued them from slavery. And here, Paul is saying, now, a righteousness of God has been manifested apart from this law. Now, for the Jews in the church in Rome, they would have heard this, and they would have been thinking, listen, there could be no greater clarity on what righteousness meant than the law of God. That was the standard. It was the measuring stick. It was the ruler for everything that claimed to be true, good, or beautiful. It was the law of God. And yet Paul is saying a righteousness, the righteousness of God, has been manifested apart from the law. Now, we spent a lot of time back in chapter 1 on what the righteousness of God means. The righteousness of God is like a diamond. It's not one-dimensional. It's multifaceted. You hold it up in the light, and you turn it, and it shimmers in every angle. That's what the righteousness of God is. It is a multifaceted, complex concept. But there are really three dominant angles that Paul has in mind in Romans. The first one is the righteousness of God is God's gracious source of salvation. It's his gracious source of salvation. It's how God makes us whole. And we're going to get to this here in a minute because that's really where he's driving us here. But that's the first one. The righteousness of God is his gracious source of salvation. You and I are unrighteous. Paul's been telling us that. So we must be made righteous, and the righteousness of God is how he makes us righteous. The second is that God's righteousness, the righteousness of God, is God's holy standard for the saved. It's his holy standard for the saved. It's how he wants us to walk. It's how he wants us to live. It's his standard. It is how we are to walk. It is the kind of tablet or the paradigm or the mold for how God's people are to be shaped in accordance with the righteousness of God. And the third thing, the righteousness of God is his nature, his just and faithful nature. It's who he is. See, the righteousness of God is who God is. He is righteous. It's what God does. It's the demonstration of his character and actions. It's what God provides to a people who need it, and it's how he calls us to live. It's what obedience is looking like. It's what it's shaped by. So to say that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law is to say that God's righteous character, there has been a greater unveiling of it than there was before. There's a greater unveiling of the righteousness of God. Paul is not saying, listen, the law was insignificant. He's not saying, listen, the law, it's worthless. He's not saying the law, it wasn't good. A lot of times we think about the New Testament's message is that law bad, grace good. No, that's not how the New Testament is telling its story. It's saying the law doesn't work like you thought it worked. The law doesn't function like you thought it functioned. The law's function is not as a tool of a tyrant. It's the words of a tutor. That's what Paul wants us to see. The law wasn't meant to be a tyrant condemning you by your failure to live up to it. It was meant to be the words of a wise tutor instructing you in the way of life and righteousness. And yet, for many, the law had become a cudgel. It had become a weapon by which to keep people from the presence of God. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. You see, it's not that the law wasn't good. It's that Christ is a fuller, richer, more complete, more whole expression of the intention and hope of God's law. 
See, God's righteousness is displayed and given through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, right? That's what it says in verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. Now this, this is incredible news. Specifically for the church in Rome. Now, it may feel like we're a little bit numb to the difference here. But the church in Rome was characterized by Jews and Gentiles. It was a mixed church. And because of that, it would have been very easy for either group to basically feel like, you know what? We have more of a stake in this. We are more of the just heirs of what God has done than the other. And yet here, Paul is saying, no, there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Why? Because everyone who comes to faith in Jesus Christ, everyone who believes in Jesus will be given the righteousness of God. You see, we receive all that Christ has done through faith. Now, I often find that people really struggle with what faith is. With what faith is. We talk about the Christian faith or Christian belief, and yet sometimes we don't really know what it means to have faith. Faith is surrender. Faith is loyalty to God. Faith is the affections of our heart and the allegiances of our hands. Faith is entrusting our whole life to all of God and saying, we don't have what we desperately need, and yet you graciously provide it. That's faith. The old theologian said, faith draws everything from the work of Christ and contributes nothing to it. Faith isn't the way that Christ's work is effective. Christ's work is effective. His grace, God's grace, is sufficient. He doesn't need you punching the faith card on the way in. That's not what faith is. Faith isn't your little status card, your members-only jacket, to say, you know what, I really belong in this space. Faith is the instrument of our salvation. It receives everything from Jesus while contributing nothing to the work that he's accomplished. And our faith is rooted in Christ's faithfulness. No, I can't get into all the details here. But this phrase that's used here, through faith in Jesus Christ, is one of the most hotly debated phrases in the New Testament. Did you believe that? Seems like such a simple thing, but honestly, the Greek here is incredibly complex. With some suggesting that what it, its emphasis is on us, us placing faith in Jesus. While others saying, no, the emphasis is on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That we are saved because Christ is faithful. Not because we place our faith in Christ. And here's what I will say to both of those things. Two sides of the same glorious truth. That we are saved because of a faithful Savior. Our faith is rooted in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. This is one of the great consolations and comforts of the gospel. Is that after you place faith in Jesus, he's faithful even when you're faithless. Isn't that good news? Has anyone ever felt faithless? Yeah. Probably all of us, right? When we have trusted in Christ, even when we are faithless, Christ remains faithful. This is the hope of our salvation. What Paul is saying here is this. When you place your faith in Jesus, his faithfulness becomes your faithfulness. His righteousness becomes your righteousness. His perfection, his grace is given over to you. Why? Because you are in him. Because you are in Jesus Christ. The hope of our salvation isn't that we're people of bold faith. It's that Christ is a faithful Savior who never fails. And that's really good news for people like me who fail often. 
Because Paul goes on to say here, right, he's demonstrated righteousness. He's displayed the righteousness of God, and now he's going to demonstrate our need. Why is this? Well, why is there no distinction? Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is why we need that righteousness, because we have sinned and we have fallen short. We have missed the mark. We have failed to measure up. You see, we, all of us, are in need of the righteousness of God, the righteousness that he alone can provide, and there's no distinction. All of us are broken by sin. What, what is this sin that has broken us? When did we sin? Well, once again, Paul is referencing the failure of Adam and Eve in the garden, our human representatives, to measure up to God's standard, to listen, to be faithful to what God's words were. And because of this, sin results in a broken condition and broken actions. Because our failure isn't just the ordinary failures of our life. Our failure begins at a deeper place than that. Because we're born broken. Sin is first and foremost a broken condition, a broken condition of our heart that we are not righteous. And it leads into broken actions that because we are not righteous, we do unrighteousness. Because we are broken, we practice brokenness. Because we are sinners, we sin. You know, a lot of times we think that grace is the antidote to our problem because it helps us to live a life that will course correct this condition. That's not why grace is good news. Grace is good news because it transforms us from sinner into saint. It transforms us from stranger into son or daughter. That's what grace does. It begins by fundamentally altering our condition, our identity, the foundation of who we are. And on this new foundation, within this new identity, we begin to live in a new way. As a consequence of our sin, we have fallen short of the glory of God. We were born to reflect God. We were born to give glory to God. And yet we are not born into this world doing those things. Like graffiti artists, spiritually, we are born defacing the glory of God. We are born stealing the glory of God. This is what sin does, is it misdirects us. It takes us from a people who are meant to give glory to God, and it forms us into a people who steal glory from God. This is what sin does to us. We have become utterly unrighteous, utterly undeserving of God's grace. We have not measured up. We have been weighed, we have been measured, and we have been found wanting. This is what it means to fall short of his glory. It means we are unrighteous, that we don't have the one thing that we absolutely have to have in order to be in fellowship with God. It means that we are unable to choose righteousness. It means that we are unwilling to choose righteousness, and it means we're unworthy of deserving it. We're unworthy. Now, maybe you have felt this in your life. Maybe you felt unworthy. Maybe you felt like you don't measure up. Maybe you felt like you're not enough, that you've fallen short. And let me tell you the bad news. You don't measure up. You aren't enough. You're not. And I know right now that there, there, there's a whole industry built around convincing you that you're enough. Just by yourself. And let me tell you, that's false. You're not. You're not enough. You don't measure up. You have been weighed and you have been found wanting. You are not delivering on the standard that God has set by nature. See, here's the bad news about trying to find self-glory as people who steal glory. 
is that if you go into your lives looking for hidden glory that's buried in your heart, you're never going to find enough that's going to tell you you're worth the love of God. Somebody's always going to be further downfield. They're going to be more successful. They're going to be more self-confident. They're going to seem to have a better Instagram game. They're going to feel like they got their ducks in a row. They're going to seem like, oh, that person, that, they really have it going on, right? See, if you go looking for hidden glory in the corners of your heart, you're going to find some special things because you're an image bearer. You're beloved. You're a mixture of beauty and brokenness. It would be no surprise to me that if you look inside yourself that you're going to find out you're pretty amazing. You know why? Because God's designed you. I'm not surprised to find his fingerprints on your life. But the reality is, is that we try to root our belovedness, our worth, our measuring up, and what we bring to the table, we will always fail. We will always fail. And yet that's the good news of grace. The good news of grace is even though we have fallen short of the glory of God, God invites us to experience fellowship with him through grace, through forgiveness, that we can be reconciled, that we can be restored because he has come to bring us salvation. You see, the reason that Paul keeps pushing this forward, that we are broken and unrighteous, is, is that he wants us to see, sense, and feel the depths of our neediness and to run to God as our only hope. And this is where he takes us in verses 24 through 26. And we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. It's in these verses that we get a condensed version of Paul's entire gospel message. He says that we're justified. We're declared righteous. We're made righteous. Why? By his grace as a gift. Let me ask you, why are you hustling so hard to get what God gives freely? Why are you exhausting yourself trying to steal what God is saying is already yours in Jesus? Why do you slam your foot down, asserting yourself in the world around you, saying, I am here, when God is saying, come home. Enter in. God, this, is, this is what it means to be justified by his grace as a gift. It means that he gives us what we don't deserve. It means to be declared righteous on account of what Christ has done. It means to become like Jesus by faith in Jesus. We receive this declaration by God's grace. It's his unmerited favor. What Paul calls his grace as a gift. Now this grace is misunderstood. You've heard about unconditional grace, yes? That God gives us grace freely. That's true. That's true. But sometimes we confuse the free gift of God's grace, his unconditional grace, with the idea that on the other side of it, there's no change. There's no transformation. And yet that's not how gift-giving works. We often think about gift-giving in the, in the global West as a place that comes with no strings attached. That's what it means to receive gifts. But do you realize that's a pretty modern Western conception of gift giving and gift receiving. It's not how gift giving worked in the ancient world. It's not how it works in the dominant world around us. We often have a way of taking the Bible, reading it through Western eyes, and then assuming our interpretation of it is correct because we've got the Bible. Gift giving is different in the ancient world. Gift giving is unconditional, but there's some sense in which there is a benefit derived from it. 
And that's exactly what God does with his gracious gift with us. God's grace is a free gift, but those who don't de- for those who don't deserve it and for those who can't earn it, but those who receive this gift are meant to magnify the righteousness of God. They're meant to go out and to live in light of it. Martin Luther said the love of God does not find but creates what is pleasing to itself. When God looks at us, he doesn't see what's pleasing. By nature, we're separated. We're strangers. We're subject, according to the Bible, of the wrath of God. And yet God's grace takes what was broken and turns it into beauty. You see, this is what grace is. Grace is the divine demand that says, you must be made new. And the divine provision that says, and I will do the work of Grace, we often think about it as soft. It's felt. Still, and grace is a kindness of God. But the way grace works in our lives is a lot less of soft love and more like the pressure that takes coal and turns it into diamond. It's something that shapes and changes us, fundamentally altering who we are and how we appear in the sight of the world. This is the gracious gift of God, whom God put forward, according to verse 25, as a propitiation. Do you know what this word means? Propitiation? This is, a, this is a very big word. This is incredibly significant. Propitiation means this, that Jesus Christ is our substitute. Propitiation is a sacrifice word. It's a word to use to talk about a sacrifice that takes upon itself the sins and the judgment against those sins. What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying this, you and I deserve the wrath of God. But do you know who's taken the wrath of God upon themselves? God himself. In the Son of God, Jesus Christ, Jesus takes upon himself the propitiation. He becomes the substitutionary sacrifice. He absorbs in himself the judgment of God, the wrath of God against sin. He is redeeming us by his blood. Why? Because we have a debt that's owed. And it must be paid back. And you may think, well, who am I a debtor to? What debt is is God paying on my behalf? He's paying the debt that we owe to God. The debt that we owe to God as rebels and as those who have rejected God. We owe a debt and that debt is death. And yet God, by his grace, says, I will take your debt. I will take your debt, and in exchange, I will give you what? I will give you life. I will give you life. I will give you deliverance. I will deliver you from this death. I will deliver you from this debt. And how do we respond? We respond in faith. We respond in faith to the God who is just and justifier, to the God who is righteous and faithful, and to the God who does righteously and faithfully, to the God who is righteous and the God who makes us righteous. That's how we respond. And having responded that way, we experience a transformation. And some of us, some of us, some of us, we keep thinking, man, if I could just push this further down too, what God is inviting you to do, God is inviting you to reckon with this. And what you encounter when you reckon with God is more grace than you can imagine. When I opened up that keyboard case in middle school, I immediately saw brokenness, and it was all I saw. And I knew I was powerless to fix it. I was stuck. I was caught. I was trapped in my failure. I was exposed until 
someone stepped in. And I could have hid what I'd done. I could have put it in the case. I could have postponed or dealt with delaying it a little bit longer. But sooner or later, it would have been clear to me, to everyone else, that I had made a mistake. And that I didn't know what to do about it. We think that when God finds out we are broken, he's going to shame us. So we hide, we cover up, we try to pretend it's not that bad, we aren't that needy, we can course correct on our own. But that's all for naught. Because ultimately we know that we need help. And it turns out that God shows us our brokenness in order to make us whole again. Like turning on the lights in a messy room, he exposes the mess. He exposes the brokenness, not just to shame us, but to save us. God repairs what sin has broken. God heals what has been infected. God saves what has been lost. He frees us from the judgment we deserve by taking that judgment upon himself. God's righteousness demonstrates that our need is greater than we could imagine. When we begin to see God for who he truly is, we realize just how far we have fallen short. And yet for those in Christ, we are brought into fellowship with God. We are brought up into the righteousness and the faithfulness and the justice of God. And why is this? Because God is gracious. Even though we are broken beyond our repair, God doesn't shrug his shoulders. He sends his son to make right what sin has made wrong. And we receive this by grace through faith. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, but we don't have to stay there. We have all failed God's law, but we don't have to remain there. We all owe a debt of death to God, and yet we're not consigned to damnation. And why? Because God is gracious. Because God makes righteous those who are unrighteous, and he does it through the sacrifice and the blood of Jesus Christ. He is just. He will not pass over sins forever. But when God counts for those sins, his first accounting of them is in his son, Jesus Christ. And all who are in Jesus are accounted for, for good forever. And on the basis of a clear debt, we go out and we live debt-free lives. We go out and we live lives acknowledging and celebrating that we have been forgiven of everything, but we want to be faithful to the God who has lavished us with riches. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you, God, for your grace and mercy in Jesus. We ask you, Lord, that you would bless the preaching of your word. God, I know that there are some among us who just feel like they're kicking the can downfield and you're inviting them today for today to be the day of their salvation. I pray, God, that that is them. God, I pray for those of us who often find that we forget the majesty of your righteousness. I pray that we would take heart and take hope that even though we by nature have fallen short of the glory of God, you have made us worthy of that glory because of him. I pray for those who are exhausted. Exhausted trying to find their worth in the hidden pockets of their heart. God, I pray that you would show them they are wonderful. That they are beautiful. That's a fact of your design, but I pray that you would also illuminate to them freedom and rest that comes from casting ourselves upon you. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in the name of Christ and by the power of the Spirit.
Amen. Would you stand with me as we receive the Lord's Supper together? You can find communion elements there on the chairs around you. If you need some and you don't have some, if you're lacking, you can just raise your hand and uh, Max will bring some to you if you need some. You can steal some from a neighbor's chair if they're not there. It's okay. It's okay. They're not reserved. We conclude our services each week with communion.